Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Bob Akishrafi. Today is August 30th, 2021, and I'm speaking with Nirja Sankaran, who is Senior Research Fellow at the Descartes Center at Utrecht University and author of A Tale of Two Viruses, Parallels in the Research Trajectories of Tumor and Bacterial Viruses, which is out this year from University of Pittsburgh Press. Thank you for joining us, Nirja. Thank you so much for having me, Babak. It's a real pleasure to be able to talk with you. Well, I really enjoyed reading your book. And you start your book telling us about tumors in chickens and something mysterious that eats bacteria. Could you tell us why these phenomena were significant and to whom? Sure. So I'll start with the tumors in chickens because that's what was detected first. There was a researcher, Peyton Rouse, a pathologist at the Rockefeller Institute, then a very newly established institute in the early part of the 20th century, so this was around 1910, who had been hired at this institute, which was explicitly not a cancer research institute, to do cancer research, to research into possible causes of different cancers. He was very new there when a farmer a very worried farmer brought this hen, Plymouth Rock hen, into the institute because it had this lump protruding from its left breast. So it clearly looked like a tumor. And Rouse was given charge of investigating the phenomenon, which he proceeded to do. And that's how he got into chicken tumors, because a worried farmer brought a um, chicken to him. Now, I don't know whether this is possible anymore. I certainly don't think anybody could walk into the Rockefeller on 66th Street in New York with a chicken saying, hey, take a look at this. I don't think he'd be allowed through the gate. But it seems like it was possible back in that day uh, because uh, this is what the stories say. A worried farmer brought a uh, chicken. And he proceeded to start to investigate it. And what he found out about it was that it was a very different kind of tumor than any kind of tumor known in birds or any other animal before. Uh, so that's where that one begins. So that's why this was significant, because it was a completely unknown at that time tumor in birds. And the idea was that one studied tumor, like a cancer tumor phenomenon across different species in the hopes that one could also learn more about and hope to eventually treat human cancers. So that was the story with the chicken tumor. This was the group that was interested in that. Cancer researchers, by and large, pathologists, virologists were not yet in the picture. Virologists were also not in the picture for finding out something mysterious that ate bacteria. That was found in the context of a bacterial epidemic, actually, an outbreak, a particularly virulent outbreak of dysentery in a army garrison at Maison Lafitte outside of Paris. There was a rather unusually virulent attack of dysentery that killed a few civilians and several soldiers or laid them low in any event. And the physician in charge of the troop, Bétillon was his name, 
he suspected this was something different than the bacterial strain that caused dysentery more normally. So he said this relatively new microbiologist, Felix Derell, to investigate the bacteriology of this outbreak. And it was Felix Durrell, in the course of investigating the outbreak, who found out that when the infection resolved itself, people who convalesced, they had something in their intestinal tract that clearly ate up the bacteria because at the height of their infection, they had a lot of bacteria that could be cultured from their stools. But if the person, when they hit what was called crisis and turned and they started to get better, it was seen that the bacteria were disappearing from the stools. And when he investigated that phenomenon in the laboratory by culturing bacteria and growing them, what he found was something that was propagating itself in the bacteria that could evidently multiply. And so he deemed it a living thing. He thought it was a living thing was able to you know stave off the infection and that was what he then called bacteriophage phage is greek for eating but Durrell was actually adamant that he meant bacteriophage in a rather adjective sense in that something that lives at the expense of the bacteria so that's why the bacteriophage phenomenon became important because it seemed to offer a way to actually give therapy to people suffering from bacillary dysentery. And this was very specifically bacillary dysentery as opposed to the amoebic dysentery, which is the other kind of infectious dysentery that affects people. And when did these two events happen? Uh, the first happened in 1910-1911 was when Peyton Rouse was brought to hen at the Rockefeller. And the Maison Lafitte epidemic outbreak took place in 1915 or 16. By the time Durrell published the work, it was 1917. So I'd say 1916. I'm going to take a chicken to the Rockefeller next time I go to New York just to see what happens. <laughs> it would be interesting to see what would happen. Uh, so one of the themes through your book uh, is that you describe scientists trying to address two questions at once. Were these phenomena they were observing caused by viruses? And by the way, what is a virus? Yes. So um, if I may rephrase those questions slightly, the scientists were trying to find out what was causing the, these phenomena, these phenomena being tumors. So what was causing the tumors in the birds and what was causing the death or the lysis of bacteria? And both of them believed that it was caused by something really small and living, and which in shorthand they referred to as viruses. Now, they didn't exactly ask the question, what is a virus? They did not investigate what a virus was. That was a question at the backdrop always, uh, because their ideas that these things could be viruses was not met with a lot of sympathy or agreement in either research community. And in fact, that's what's the main driver in my book is how they worked through the opposition and came to consensus and how the ideas beyond the work of these men went on to show that these things were viruses. But the fact is that what was a virus was itself a matter of considerable flux 
throughout the period that they and a lot of successors worked on trying to find out what these things were. So their discoveries, as I mentioned, were made in 1911, 1917, respectively. And um, the question of what is a virus, our modern definition of a virus was not arrived at until the 1950s. And so throughout this period, throughout the teens, the 20s, the 30s and 40s, ideas of what was a virus were quite different. They were evolving and in flux, as one put it. But the basic idea of what was a virus was that the virus was somehow a living creature, something mysterious. The eating of the bacteria could be viewed as a disease of the bacteria. And in fact, Durell characterized it as this bacteriophage infects the bacteria and causes a disease in the bacteria the same way that bacteria cause a disease in humans. So that was his model. Uh, and so he said the bacteriophage was therefore a small, invisible, filterable, could go through filters. You couldn't see it with the naked eye. And that was the main problem. Nobody could isolate something that could be seen not only with the naked eye, but with the highest resolution microscopes that were available in the early 20th century. And so when one could not see something, lots of people could not believe it. In the case of cancer, it was further complicated because the notion that cancer could be caused by a virus, a living creature, put a stigma almost. So they did not want cancer to have the stigma of being an infectious or a contagious disease. And so the notion that a virus or a living thing could cause this disease was anathema to cancer researchers across the globe, except to a very small group. And again, the notion of what was a virus then mattered. Was it just a very small bacterium? Was it something that another uh, that a Dutch researcher, Beierink, uh, in 1898 had characterized as a contagious living fluid? in Latin, contagium vivum fluidum? Or was it something else? How could uh, cancer be caused by a virus? It couldn't. That was the consensus. In fact, there had been a decades-long debate uh, on something called the parasitic theory of cancer. For uh, Throughout the 19th century, it had a long history of people trying to find a parasite. And by a parasite, I don't necessarily mean a protozoan parasite, but any bacteria, virus, any living creature uh, that could actually cause a cancer, and nobody had found anything. And in 1910, the International Cancer Congress had declared a consensus that the parasitic theory of cancer is dead. That was the consensus. And for us to come up the very next year, in 1911 and say that this might be caused by minute parasitic organism. Uh, he never used the word virus in his publications. And he explained this many years later, saying that he was prevented from doing so by one of the senior advisors uh, at Rockefeller, somebody at, on the board. But he said he called it a virus in all his informal talks. And he believed it was a virus. He just never called it that. And whereas Durrell had no such compunctions, he called it a virus uh, then and if he used the word virus, um, he, he wrote mostly in French um, and he called it um, an invisible micro, ultra microbe. So um, that's what he thought was a virus.
You compare the debates about viruses or this infectious agent to the parable of blind men describing parts of an elephant. What were the different perspectives from which researchers were describing these new infectious agents? Thank you for picking out that part. Well, the notion of the blind men and the elephant came to me because people looking at the elephant in the parable, each person's touching a different part and therefore describes it in that sense, right? If if they're holding on to the trunk versus feeling the skin versus the flappy ears, and each one then describes it in those terms alone. And technologies in the early part of the 20th century, there weren't that many technologies with which to look at the viruses, but technologies started to explode in the early 1930s. And you suddenly had people looking at these creatures or trying to look, literally look at them because of techniques like electron microscopy, which were developed in the early to mid thirties. Before that crystallography, by looking at the crystal structure of individual particles. And each one of them gave a very different sense. That was also the era of ultracentrifugation when very high-speed centrifugation became possible and one could separate particles on the basis of that. The first way, in fact, that viruses were separated from bacteria was that they could pass through filters that held bacteria back. So there was the first kind of blind man looking at it. The first people were saying, okay, so it's invisible, but it's transmissible. So that was one look. So filtration gave one perspective. And then ultracentrifugation gave another perspective where you were able to more clearly or more specifically deem what kind of size it could be. Um, Crystallography gave a sense of what it looked like as a crystal. And so there was some amount of chemistry or biochemistry. So crystallographers in today's language would be called the structural biologists because they were looking at mostly biological molecules. Viruses form that interesting cusp between a molecule and a actual entire organism. And one could also say they were looking at molecules that made up living things. So viruses are small enough to be looked at at their molecular level. So there were the, and there were the molecular biologists who were looking at it. And of course, then there were, as I mentioned, electron microscopists who were able to not just look at viruses, but tell you very specifically exactly what it looked like in visual terms. For example, a bacteriophage was described as looking like a a small space missile complete with fibers for docking onto the bacterial cell wall and a hexagonal head inside which the nuclear portion was. Um, The nuclear portion meaning its DNA or its RNA. So viruses were generally thought to be made of protein and nucleic acid. And so the protein was what formed these fibers as well as the cover of this hexagonal or bulbous head and inside which was a tightly wrapped piece of Uh, nucleic acid. So that's how bacteriophages were described, very visually through uh, electron microscopy. Another thing that happened in the 30s, and which turned out to be tremendously important at so many different levels for understanding viruses, is that, that one started to be able to grow viruses, animal viruses, specifically in tissue culture. Bacteriophages could always be grown in bacteria. So 
yeah, there was another way to look at uh, the bacteriophages by how much they cleared up the bacteria. And so if you were growing bacteria in lawns as continuous muddy lawns on Petri dishes, the viruses were these large empty holes almost looking like bubbles in Swiss cheese on the surface of a Petri dish. So there were all these different groups of people looking at viruses or using viruses to get ahead with whatever they were trying to do, understand the gene, for example. So these are some of the perspectives. Um, there are probably several others that I haven't mentioned, but at least there were the structural biologists, electron microscopists, people who were interested in the chemistry, therefore using chemical separation techniques like the ones I mentioned, filtration and especially ultracentrifugation. And then there were people interested in cultivating viruses so that you had enough quantities to maybe think about doing tests and um, developing vaccines. And so those who were cultivating viruses saw them as things that were producing peculiar artifacts on whatever substrate you were growing them on. So if you were growing them on cells, they formed blisters, or if you're growing them on membrane of eggs, they formed pox, not unlike the vesicles one sees in smallpox, which is where the same word comes from. So you've listed the different perspectives from which researchers were trying to describe viruses or the infectious agents. What developments contributed to establishing the virus as a distinct category of things that exist and how they operate? Okay. So in a sense, I would say that viruses since late 1898, when the term virus first started to be used regularly to describe a very particular agent that was much smaller than bacteria and therefore filterable, a filterable virus was how it was first called. It was always accepted that they were a category of things that existed. Uh, now, whether something was a virus or not was a different question. And oftentimes the question was, is such and such thing a virus? Is um, bacteriophage a virus? Was the cancer causing principle a virus? And many people, most people thought no. Ultimately, the virus came to be defined on the basis of a few properties. In fact, for the longest time, I should back up and say that throughout the early part of the 20th century, through, until the 30s, one virologist complained that all viruses were defined by were their negative characteristics. They could not be seen by the naked eye. They could not be held back by filters. And they could not be cultivated on artificial media the way one could bacteria. So they were obviously different from bacteria, but they were causing diseases. So for practical purposes, many of them regarded viruses as very small bacteria. It soon became obvious that that was not practical, especially when the issue of cultivation came about. So the developments that ultimately led to a recognition of what a virus is and how it is actually different from other categories of infectious beings came about in the 1950s in the wake of the discovery that DNA is what is the carrier of heredity across the living kingdom. That combined with the other perspective that I mentioned, for example, electron microscopy and x-ray crystallography, which showed you how a virus looked, that it was a protein coat 
with a piece of DNA or RNA, which functioned like DNA for uh, our purposes right now, that a virus was made of just these two things. And then it became possible to figure out why a virus was dependent on a living being in order for it to propagate. Something that had been mentioned, I should add, as early as 1898 by Byrink, uh, who said that, you know, the multiplication of viruses is intimately linked to, he was talking about tobacco mosaic virus, so to the uh, multiplication of the plant cell. But this fact was ignored for a long time until one figured out exactly how a virus looked and how it then interacted with its host. And it became clear that only really the DNA or the nuclear material, if you would, was getting into the host. And that was what was replicating. Using the host's DNA, by replicating, I mean multiple copies of it were being made inside the host using the machinery, for lack of a better word, uh, of the host. You know, you, it was basically piggybacking and using all the host's equipment or tools to build more bits of itself that were then released or forming then new particles because uh, those would also be assembled within the cell. And sometimes this kind of replication and assembly happened at the cost of the host cell being able to do anything for itself and either killing off the host cell or at least this is what causes a disease when the virus took over the host cell. So these sort of things happened uh, and how it happened started to be understood in the wake of the DNA revolution, the understanding that DNA was the material of genes, which happened in 1944. Uh, and it was in that wake that Andre Loaf, for example, discovered how the bacteriophage was able to sometimes be there as a particle and sometimes appear to completely disappear from sight. You could never see the particles without, with or without, even with an electron microscope or on the basis of bacteriophage activity. And then suddenly it would appear again. Uh, and so all that happened in the 50s. So we've touched upon just some of the highlights of the history you tell us about in your book. And in your afterward, you write, history does not end, but books must. And indeed, history has not ended. Um, viruses are in the forefront of the thoughts of everyone now. What questions or lessons would you like contemporary readers to take away from your book? When I began this book, Corona was not even a thing to think about. It was only when I was proofreading that I realized that I needed to write about, uh, mention Corona because of the timing of when the book would come out. But I think the fact that viruses are very much with us and actually predate human beings on this planet, it behooves us to understand something of the history of our knowledge of them. And, and every time something seems to be caused by a virus, there seems to be considerable resistance many times. I wouldn't say every time. The history I talk about happened early in the 20th century. There was a lot of resistance to bacteriophage as virus or to the, especially to the idea of cancer being caused by viruses. And yet it wasn't until these ideas were accepted that something like the HPV the human papilloma virus vaccine could be developed. People would have started looking into it a lot earlier had people accepted that, that there was no stigma 
and that viruses could indeed induce tumors, whether or not the tumors were infectious. And then the similar thing happened with AIDS. The lessons learned from the cancer viruses were completely ignored in the 80s when AIDS sort of broke out in epidemic proportion in North America. And because the majority of people diagnosed with AIDS were uh, male homosexuals, and therefore it was believed that this was a gay disease. In fact, AIDS's early name was gay-related immunodeficiency. And there was a lot of resistance because of social stigma to even looking for the virus or giving adequate funds. And eventually the disease broke out in pandemic proportions not eventually, rather quickly, and it was very quickly realized that the pandemic was, yes, it was sexually transmitted, but unrelated to sexual preference. Uh, if you look in Africa, for example, it's largely a heterosexual disease, if I may use the shorthand term. But what I'm getting at with all of this is that history has shown us time and again that stigmas of all sorts prevent us from seeing what's under our nose. And if we are to learn the lessons of history, then we need to, you know, really know our history properly. So that's where I'm going with this. I do think that had people been more open-minded and or receptive to the lessons of uh, history of these other viruses, then we may have mitigated the worst of some of the more devastating pandemics. Thank you, Nirja, for sharing your work and your perspectives with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Babak. The book is A Tale of Two Viruses, Parallels in the Research Trajectories of Tumor and Bacterial Viruses, and is published by the University of Pittsburgh Press. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. You can find more resources for exploring this topic, other podcasts, video lectures, archival spotlights, as well as opportunities to connect with our community of scholars at chstm.org. This podcast is made possible with the generous support of the Pew Charitable Trusts, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and the Rita Allen Foundation.